For our second message, we have a sermon from Mr. Curtis Whiteley entitled, Rejoice in the Lord Always. Mr. Whiteley. Thank you, Reggie. Good afternoon. It's wonderful to see everyone, as it always is here on this toasty Sabbath day, as as normal here in Oklahoma, right, on late July. So I just want to, as Reg pointed out, the, the message today is entitled, Rejoice in the Lord Always. And uh, Barnabas actually just uh, read that passage uh, from Philippians, the fourth chapter, verse four. And it's interesting because I just have to say, and I want to give props to, to Matthew Steele, that was a very powerful message. Uh, his message about taking up the mantle. And uh, as you just heard, he talked a lot about how the church has a responsibility. You know, whether or not, you know, we, we can kind of go back and forth or discuss, you know, that, that's, that end time Elijah, that end time, you know, prophet that stands up and proclaims the name of the Lord, prepares his paths. You know, rather, you know, regardless of the specifics of that, I think we could all agree we have a mantle to carry. We have a responsibility. We, we know from scriptures, as Matt pointed out in Acts, the, the second chapter, the day of Pentecost, that the church was born, that the Spirit was given, and even going back to the gospel, the gospels, the Great Commission, we have a mission, a responsibility to proclaim the gospel to this world. And so the reason I wanted to open up with that was because in some ways, I think that there is somewhat of a relation to what we're going to talk about today in, in my message. And that's because we're looking at a book, a, an epistle of Paul's, like many, where he's dealing with a group of people that are struggling with a lot of things, like most of the groups that he talks to. And today, in our world, we can talk about globally, just Christianity in general, the church, the church of God specifically, like in our own heritage, in our own history and tradition. We could probably agree that there's been a lot of times that the church hasn't done a very good job of taking up that mantle and proclaiming the gospel. Now, just as a show of hands, just real quick, you don't have to show your hands, but you don't have to admit anything, but I'm sure that you, you can at least think in your head, how many of you have experienced some division within the church? And they're usually always about really, really big things, right? Never about petty issues, right? That never happens. I think we all can, I mean, in our history, just alone, in our own tradition here, we can look at the, the church uh, as history has unfolded from the very beginning of the first century, we know that the church, because we're made up of human beings, of course, we understand that we have the Spirit of God, but still that old man rages within us. And sometimes humanity, the pride of man, gets the best of us. And we experience divisions. We experience controversies. And so as I was preparing this message this week, I came across something that I had written up 
long time ago, probably eight, nine years ago. And it was this little story. Now, I, I, I'll admit, I didn't write this in, in, in the sense that I authored it per se, but there was this illustration story that I found uh, that I think a Baptist minister or someone came up with between two Baptists talking to each other. So I, I, I modified it, I amended it, and made it Church of God oriented. And it's a story about two men discussing things, and the story goes like this. A man by the name of Mike was walking across a bridge one day, and he noticed another man standing on the edge of the bridge getting ready to jump off. So Mike thought that he would try and stall him until the authorities showed up. Maybe you can remember when I gave this story years ago. Mike says, don't jump. The man says, why not? Nobody loves me. Mike says, God loves you. You believe in God, don't you? The man says, yes, I believe in God. Mike says, well, good. Are you a Christian or Jewish? The man says, Christian. Mike says, me too. Protestant or Catholic? The man says, neither. Mike says, what are you then? The man says, church of God. Mike says, me too. Independent church of God or Sabbatarian church of God? The man says, Sabbatarian Church of God. Mike says, me too. Sabbatarian Holy Day Keeping Church of God or Sabbatarian Non-Holy Day Keeping Church of God. The man says, Sabbatarian Holy Day Keeping Church of God. Mike says, me too. Sabbatarian Holy Day Keeping, Non-Christmas Keeping of Church of God or Sabbatarian Holy Day Keeping, Christmas Keeping Church of God. The man says, Sabbatarian, holiday keeping, non-Christmas keeping, church of God. Mike says, me too. Sabbatarian, holiday keeping, non-Christmas keeping with the 14th Passover church of God. Or Sabbatarian, holiday keeping, non-Christmas keeping with the 15th Passover church of God. The man says, Sabbatarian, holiday keeping, non-Christmas keeping with the 14th Passover church of God. Mike says, me too. Sabbatarian, holy day keeping, non-Christmas keeping with the 14th Passover, looking at the Isalzal Good of Leviticus 16 as representing Satan on the Day of Atonement, or Sabbath day, holy day keeping, non-Christmas keeping with the 14th Passover, looking at the Isalzal Good of Leviticus 16 as representing Christ on the Day of Atonement, Church of God. The man says, Sabbatarian, holy day keeping, non-Christmas keeping with the 14th Passover, looking at the Isalzal Good of Levit Leviticus 16 as representing Christ on the Day of Atonement, Church of God. Mike says, ah, you heretic, and knocks him off the bridge. And of course, the story goes that all of these things that they agree on, they agree on all of these little things, or big things, you know, core theology. That small little thing, that little understanding was just a little off. And there was a disagreement between the two. And Mike kicks him off the bridge. Didn't want to have anything to do with him. And too often we see that this is the case within Christianity. And we have seen that this is the case oftentimes within our own church tradition. And so Paul deals with this. And it seems that in Philippians, one of the things that he deals with was some disagreement between brethren. And Paul's going to give some exhortations that we as a church should follow 
and also, of course, as a church, but as individuals should follow to help potentially ward off these unnecessary divisions that happen within the church. So I want us to go to Philippians, the fourth chapter. I'm just going to pick it up in verse 1. Our primary text today is verses 4 through 7. But I'm going to pick it up in verse 1 of Philippians, the fourth chapter. It says, in Philippians, the fourth chapter, verse 1 says, Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Eudia and I implore Sinchi to be, the, to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And so apparently there was some sort of quarrel between these individuals, between these two women. Uh, and, and looking at different commentaries and the background information, these are some of the things that many commentaries have come to the conclusion of, especially in light of the different things that Paul says in the letter. He talks a lot about humility, talks a lot about unity of the Spirit. And so when we read verse 4, as Barnabas read when he was doing the prayer request, Paul says this, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be, know, be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, I just want to kind of go point through point what Paul says here in these first, or these, this string of passages, verses 4 through 7. Now, we oftentimes talk about rejoicing, right? Feast time comes around. Usually, that's the theme of the week. Rejoice. And so, if we ask the question, what is rejoicing exactly? And if you looked at the Greek, what this word means, this is the Greek word, kairo, a chario, which means to be glad, to be joyful, to be full of joy. It's real basic, right? Joyful or rejoicing is anonymous and connected to that word, has a relationship with that word, joy. Happy is oftentimes something that we think of when we think of the word joy. Now, in some ways, I think that we'd be fooling ourselves if we don't probably admit that this isn't an easy thing. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. It's interesting how he has a double emphasis in this passage, isn't it? Notice how this double emphasis, we can just think about how Paul's thinking in his mind whenever he's writing this. You know, oftentimes when you write somebody, you probably don't like think about saying the same thing over and over again. But if you think about it in a verbal way, we can see how this makes sense. Because Paul probably was assuming or was probably projecting that he was going to say, rejoice in the Lord always. And in people's minds that were reading this, they were probably going to have some sort of rebuttal to Paul. But Paul, how can we rejoice? We're experiencing this. Or how can we rejoice? We have this going on. And so Paul's trying to, in his writing here, trying to emphasize, no matter what's going on, no matter what's happening, I'm telling you right now, rejoice in the Lord 
always. Now, in this church, there was not only division going on, but there was probably, as we look at the context, and you look at some of the background of the letter of Philippians, they were probably having some persecution from those outside the church. They were probably experiencing other things, people that were ill, sicknesses, things like that that was going on. And sometimes, it's sometimes it might feel like it's hard to relate to these different groups of, of different Christian groups. But in a lot of ways, we still experience the same thing today. As a church, we know that we have hardships. Not the church specifically, the building, but us as individuals, we know. I mean, we just heard the prayer request. We know that people are struggling with things in life. Health, finances. All kinds of things. And it's a struggle in this physical life. And as Matt talked about a little while ago, sometimes these struggles make us want to maybe kind of turn that head and start looking at the past. It's easy to do that. It really is. And I'm not up here telling you this because it is easy or telling you this because I've mastered it because I haven't. I still, just like all of us sometimes, dwell on the past. Start worrying about what's going on in my physical life to the point where I'm not thinking about the future. I'm not thinking about the, the bigger perspective. I'm not thinking about that kingdom that's coming. And so it's interesting how Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. That's a tough thing to do because of what we experience in this life. But you know what's interesting? Is that Paul, because I don't want to say that I'm telling you to rejoice, rejoice in the Lord always, because I probably haven't done a very good job at it as an individual. But Paul is telling us this. As the inspired individual that wrote part of God's word, and through Christ, we see that he lived up to this motto. Let's go to Acts, the 16th chapter. Paul had good qualifications to be able to tell these people to rejoice in the Lord always, no matter the situation that they were experiencing. Acts, the 16th chapter. What's interesting is, is that when he was in Philippi, earlier on, he demonstrated this rejoicing in the Lord despite some hardships that he, he was going through. If we just pick it up, I'm just going to pick it up in context. He's in Philippi. He gets arrested. And in verse 23 of chapter 16 of Acts, it says, And when they laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely, having received such a charge he, that is the jailer, put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Paul's in prison right here. Or jail. And in verse 25, when we read, after he's beaten, put in jail, fastened in the most secure way that this jail had, what do you find Paul and his traveling companions doing? In verse 25, but at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. 
Now, there's something interesting about this. Okay, obviously, what's, what we're looking at is Paul living out that rejoicing in the Lord always. He's just been in, put, put in jail. He was beaten beforehand. And what is he doing while he's in jail? He's singing hymns to God and praying to God. He's living a rejoicing life. And it's interesting, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now let's just think about it. If you were a prisoner, and you see these guys rolling into the jail, bloodied, bruised maybe, clothes ripped up because they've been manhandled around. I mean, I can just imagine, you know, we, we think today that sometimes our authorities can overstep their bounds. So I can guarantee you that Roman authorities... They didn't have YouTube videos out there. They didn't have the dash cams or anything like that. They just did what they wanted with you. Especially if you were a non-Roman. Which Paul was a Roman, but a lot of the Romans didn't know that. As we see later on in the story as it unfolded. But can you imagine being a prisoner? You're sitting in there. You hate where you are. Maybe you're in there for a good reason. And you see these guys rolling in. Like I said, bloodied, bruised, clothes ripped up. And they're singing hymns to their God. You must be thinking, wow, what are these guys doing? Now, some of them probably thought they were crazy. But many of them, and as history would unfold, actually became true. That kind of behavior, rejoicing in the Lord and in light of the persecution and light of the trials of individuals, we know from history that many people, that was a huge witness to them. As Christianity started to grow, a lot of people thought to themselves, wow, this God must be real. This Jesus, this God that they're proclaiming, is so powerful and they're so committed that even in the spite of persecution and martyrdom, they praise this God and rejoice in Him. So there's not only an element for ourselves in rejoicing the Lord always, but there's an evangelistic element as well. Rejoice in the Lord always. I think it's safe to say that we need to replace our complaints with rejoicing. Not because it's easy, because it's the model that we've been given we are to rejoice in all things, in persecution, in attacks of false doctrines, in personality clashes within the church. At all times, Paul admonishes us to rejoice. Always be thankful for what God has given us. And it's not easy. The second thing Paul tells us in verse 5, he says, Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Now this word in the, in the Greek, this word that's gentleness is the Greek word apikis. And I'm not really probably pronouncing these Greek words the best. Uh, but I don't pronounce English words the best either. So uh, I've just uh, wanted to point this out. It's often been translated into English by various translations as gentle, yielding, kind, forbearing, and lenient. It's been said by many people who are Greek expositors as a word that means yielded rights. Or ready to forgive. Let's just think about that. 
It's a word that means when someone wrongs you, that you yield your right to retaliate. That you yield your right to retaliate and you're ready to forgive. Another thing that's hard to do, right? It's difficult. Someone does something to you. Someone wrongs you. What do we want to do? We want to lash out at that person. We want to retaliate. We want to go back to the Old Testament, right? The old school, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But we know what Jesus said about that earlier on in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember the humility of Jesus? It's interesting. Not only do we see Paul in jail in Acts the 16th chapter, but while he's writing the book of Philippians or a letter to Philippians, he's also in prison. It's one of his prison letters. And it's interesting, as a man who's in prison, and probably in prison for unjust causes, right? I mean, there's probably nothing that Paul technically did other than other people didn't like his message and they wanted him thrown in jail. And Romans might be considering him to be causing a stir. Oftentimes, these Christians early on, they were lied about and they were falsely accused of things. But Paul tells us something that's really interesting. We talk about the reasonableness, the gentleness be known to all. Right before, or a few chapters before, the famous passage that we find in Philippians. One of the most, I I wouldn't say one of the most, but historians believe that this was somewhat of a hymn. And it's interesting because every now and then when you read Paul, you'll find a passage in there that, well, that comes from Paul, but it might have been a part of a greater hymn or a greater saying or motto that Christians would talk about. And it says in verse 5 of Philippians, the second chapter, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so, in short, Paul is commanding us for our conduct and attitude towards all be a Christian one. To be gentle. You know, going back to what we talked about at the beginning. I mean, obviously we see divisions within the church. We see them over big doctrinal issues, church structure issues, petty issues. But even something more general than that. We see the church, or let's just say Christianity, in the world, not acting very Christian. A lot of times. You know it can be over a a, a myriad of things. Unfortunately and I hate to say this. But sometimes I feel like. When I turn on the news. Or I turn on like anything political. I see a lot of people who are claiming Jesus. And claiming this. And they're not acting like Jesus. They're not acting very Christian. They're acting like their political stance is more important. 
than actually their stance in the kingdom of God. Like their citizenship based upon the country they live in. And don't get me wrong, I think we could all agree we're, we're appreciative of living in this free land that we know has been blessed and ordained by God. But I mean, that's not our final citizenship. Our final citizenship is in the kingdom of God. And oftentimes I feel like people that claim to be Christian, sometimes they act like they're treasures here on earth, not in heaven where God is, not awaiting for God to bring it to this earth and that treasure to be in the kingdom of God. I see a lot of people, and probably even myself sometimes, not be very gentle and reasonable, ready to be a person who yields the right to retaliate like Jesus did. We are to show patience, love, long-suffering, graciousness, selflessness, just as Christ has shown us and he did it to the point that he actually emptied himself as divine in heaven, as part of the Godhead, emptied himself and became a human being to die for me and you. Who are we to show this to? All men. All human beings. It's interesting because we know that in Matthew, the fifth chapter on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, he addressed this, right? And this could have been because sometimes people were taught that, you know, you, you show graciousness to just your, your fellow believers. But Jesus, in Matthew, the fifth chapter, verse 43, on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Again, not a very easy thing to do. But remember, Jesus died for the very people that put him to death. Do we want to follow after his footsteps? Verse 45, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. And so as Christians, we have a calling, right? To represent Jesus Christ on this earth, to be ambassadors, to, to, to help promote that way of the Lord. And so this is part of it. Well, let's just think about this. Let's just think about this idea of, of being gentle. You know, maybe you've experienced this before. I think that there's some practical benefits to this. Maybe you have, in your experience before, and maybe you haven't, maybe someone has gotten frustrated with you, has gotten angry with you. Maybe you did something, and they were upset with you, and they retaliated against you verbally. And you, instead of trying to buck up and confront them, you know, someone comes after you, sometimes it's hard to do that, but maybe, maybe you just, in a humble way, apologized. And you continued to be kind to them and said, I, I apologize. I was wrong to do that. 
Now, oftentimes, that can, that can actually have a really good benefit, can't it? I mean, if we think about it, let's, let's, let's turn the tables around. Let's turn the tables around. Maybe, maybe someone has wronged you before, and you became very angry at them, and you started yelling at them, or whatever it was, or you, you did something to get back at them, and they were very apologetic, very sorry. I don't know about you, but I've, I've been in this situation before, and it's not very comfortable, is it? When someone's kind of humbled themselves, they've came to you in meekness, asking for your forgiveness, apologetic. Maybe I have a heart of stone going in, but that attitude, that approach, it softens me. In fact, it makes me feel like I'm the wrong one. It makes me feel kind of bad that I was so angry or so upset. So there's some practical benefits to this. Not always. Obviously, there's some people out there, no matter what you do, they're going to retaliate. They're going to be angry, no matter how sorry you are. But Paul, at the very end of this, gave us a reason why. Now, we're supposed to do this because we're supposed to be representing Jesus, right? But he says this because the Lord is near. He says, if we go back, if we go back to verse... Five, he says, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Now, we can take this one of two ways. The first way, we know that we have a, a Savior that's not just in heaven at the right hand of God, but will be coming back to this earth at some point. At some point, the imminent return of Jesus is going to happen. And when he does, he's not just coming back like he did the first time. He's coming back as the righteous judge. And all people will have to give an account for the deeds that they did. And so we have to be watchful on how we behave as Christians. Because we will have to give an account for the way we are and for the things that we do. But the second way that we could take this is that the Lord is near in space. I don't know about you, but I believe that although Christ is in heaven at the right hand of God, He's also with us at all times. I mean, isn't what being a Christian is that the promise was that through God's Spirit, Christ lives within us. He's within us. He's changing us. He's transforming us. And so in this way, Paul could be saying that Christ is near by means of his continual presence with us. Christ is near in our midst, and we are to act as if he is physically present in all our doings, both in church and outside, because in spirit, he is. He hears all, he hears all sees all, knowing your thoughts and even the deepest intents of the heart and mind. In either case, no matter how Paul meant this, both are true. Christ is with us, he's in our midst, and he also, his return is imminent. And so we have to be mindful of that. Continuing on in Philippians, let's read verse 6 and 7. Paul says, after saying, being reasonable, the Lord, is at, the Lord is at hand, he says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Paul finally exhorts us to not be anxious, but instead replace your anxiety 
with prayer and supplication. Another difficult thing. Being anxious, worrying, unfortunately it seems, at least from my perspective, to be kind of a natural response. You see, we as humans, we have this nature about us. And I think part of that nature is to worry when things take place. And I think some of that is is because within us, there's a little bit of a an idea that we can kind of figure things out on our own. I know that kind of sounds almost the opposite of what worry is, but I mean, let's think about what worry is. I mean, unfortunately, this is a part of being a human. This is a, a natural part of being a human. Something happens, we worry about it, we become anxious. And I don't think Paul is saying that you, don't, you just go through life and you have no care in the world. I mean, obviously God wants us to be smart and he wants us to be wise and use good judgment and he wants us to plan for things, natural things that we need to plan for. But I think what Paul's talking about here is worrying is going through life in a way where we worry in a manner that leaves out the perspective of who we are in Christ. Paul goes and tells on tells us to be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And I think that in a lot of ways, sometimes when we worry, with that perspective not there of who we are in Christ, what worrying does is it makes us start to think. And what do we do? We start to try to figure out our problems. Well, how am I going to do this? Or how am I going to do that? And of course, we have to use our judgment. We have to use our rationale. Maybe sometimes when something happens, the first thing we do is we have someone we call. Maybe it's mom or dad or brother or aunt or friend. Someone we call and we want to get their advice. Hey, this happened. What should I do? What do you think about this? You know, I have this decision to make. This is, this is what's going on. I need help with this. The question is, though, how much do we phone in God? How much, how, how much of our problems do we take to God? Now, of course, we talk about prayer all the time, right? You know, prayer and supplication. Petitions, that's what supplication is. We're requesting, we are, we are petitioning God to enter our life, inviting God to enter into our realm and help us with our problem. Paul is telling us no matter what we go through, don't let the faith-corrupting reactions of anxiety, fearfulness, and worry rule over us. Now that's easy to do. That's so easy to do. I heard this quote one time, and I can't remember where it came from, but it says, worry about nothing, pray about everything. Even the smallest thing I believe that God wants to be involved in. You know, sometimes we can get in that mindset, I think, you know, God's up there, he's, we've got all these things that people are asking of him, and I just got this little measly old problem. I mean, I don't want to, I feel bad, I shouldn't take that to God. God will probably just, you know, God might be mad at me because my problem's so small and measly. I don't think that, from reading scripture, I don't think that's the case. I think God wants to be invited into your life incomplete. And part of the process of you requesting petition or, or supplication from God, I believe is not just the request in and of itself, but it's part of the relationship building that you are making with God. 
By doing this, instead of being internally ruined by fear, it will be replaced, as Paul tells us, by the peace of God through Christ. Now it's interesting how Paul mentions this phrase, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Let's just think about that. Let's just think about what Paul says in verse 6. The phrase, be anxious for nothing, means to be concerned about, and the first human response of concernment is thinking. And thinking implies that somehow we're going to figure something out. But if we read in Ephesians, the third chapter, Paul says this in verse 20. Ephesians, the third chapter, verse 20. Paul says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we have asked or think according to the power that works in us. We have a resource that's above all resources in this entire universe. We have access to the God of this universe. It's very important for us to take our problems to God. And this might sound basic, right? It might seem like, why don't we even need, need to listen to this? I mean, <laughs> it's, it, 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 it's true. We know it. We don't even have to be told it. But sometimes we don't act like it, I think, in, in, in life. Sometimes we forget that God wants to know about all of our problems. God knows all and is capable of all. So in essence, when we are tempted to worry, get on the phone with God. Let's go to verse 7, our last part here. Let's read verse 7 again. Philippians, the fourth chapter, verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. As I mentioned, this was a promise. It's interesting that this word, guard, this peace will be guarded in our hearts and minds. I should add that this word guard is a military term meaning a sentry or watcher, as in ancient times, they would act as a guard or sentry to protect and spy out any potential intruders. And when we think about this metaphorical, we have a lot of intruders spiritually, right? We have a lot of intruders. We have a lot of things that we have to guard our hearts from. Because there's, there is a devil. There is an adversary. And I think that adversary would want nothing more than to sow the seeds of doubt in us. To be anxious. To be worried. To let our hearts not be guarded so he can enter in and manipulate. And eventually, ultimately, his ultimate goal we know is to destroy us. And do as much damage as he can to the plan of God for our lives. And so, Paul has exhorted us and commanded us several things here. We know that there are divisions within the church. We know that there is problems within Christianity. We see it. We see Christians oftentimes proclaimed to be Christians that have the spotlight of the media and not always act very Christian, not always represent Christ very well. But as Matt talked about earlier on, we have a mantle to carry. We have a job. We have a we have a mission. It, it, it's up to us. Well, it's up to Christ and God, but they've told us through His Word that the body of Christ, that the church of God, that the church, the worldwide church, the church universally, 
I don't mean the church of God because you have to have the term church of God on your church building or a part of your ministry. I mean the church of God organically throughout the world. We've been told by Scripture that that is the mechanism in which God is using to reach out to the world, to proclaim His gospel, to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. And so we have an important part to play as individuals that make up that body of Christ. And despite the problems that churches have oftentimes, Paul has given us some exhortation to help fight against some of those problems so we can faithfully and efficiently take up that mantle as God has intended us to. To be rejoicing at all times. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And understanding what that can do to people who are looking, who are watching. I mean, think about this. One of the parts of the, of the Great Commission is to go out and proclaim the good news and to get people to come to be a part of the church. What are they going to see when they get there? What's the attitude going to be when they get there? What kind of spirit are they going to feel? A spirit of love? A spirit that is like the mind that's supposed to be in us that was in Christ Jesus? Or are they going to see complaining, division? Are they going to see people that are ready to jump on each other? Are they going to see power struggles? Are they going to see people who are ready to just jump on anyone who doesn't agree with every little bit of doctrine that they believe in? What kind of spirit are they going to experience? Are they going to experience gentleness? Are they going to experience people rejoicing no matter what happens in life, no matter the, the persecution that they endure, no matter the trials that they, that they have to endure, what are they going to find? So in closing, always rejoice in the Lord. We have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to do this. And I think that it's important for us to always be on guard for the things that the intrusions of life that can happen. No matter what we're going through, and some of us are going through a lot. Some of us are going through things that none of us have went through before. And we have to love each other, and we have to be gentle with each other, and we have to take those problems, those worries to God. They sound just like words, but the peace of God, which Paul's telling us, the peace of God will guard our hearts. There's an end time. There's a day and age where all these things that we struggle with will be defeated. You know, the carnality that we still sometimes have, that old man that we still sometimes have, Christ has defeated it. But we still have to live out this life and sometimes endure some of the things that this life has to offer, this physical life some of those temptations, some of those imperfections, including worrying, including anxiety, including the temptation to be angry and lash out and be rough and not gentle. So I want to leave us with, no matter what happens, rejoice in the Lord always. Not just during the feast time, but in all time.